right now on Matter of Fact. Last night, there was over 100 individuals that came in. Justice at the southern border. You said that you presided over a process that destroys families. Yes, I've said that. Hundreds of children still separated from their parents. But on the day he's sworn in, President-elect Joe Biden says he'll take steps to reunite these families. I will introduce an immigration bill immediately. But reversing Trump's immigration policies will be a tall task. Then... I, Donald John Trump, do solemnly swear... The oath of office is a pledge to uphold the Constitution. And the carefully chosen words are more than symbolism. So help me God. The reasons this scholar says the powers granted by the Constitution cannot be taken for granted. Democracy is a fragile thing. Plus, big tech's big decision to silence a president. Will the impact of the social media ban set a dangerous precedent for the future? I'm Soledad O'Brien. Welcome to Matter of Fact. President-elect Joe Biden will be inaugurated next week, and on day one, he's promised to undo most, if not all, of President Trump's immigration reforms, many of which were the hallmark of his election four years ago. Among his promises, Biden has pledged to create a task force dedicated to reuniting the remaining children who were separated from their parents at the border. Those separations, a result of Trump's zero-tolerance policy, which required criminal prosecutions of all undocumented adults crossing the border. More than 600 children still haven't seen their parents, some for more than three years. Our correspondent, Jessica Gomez, traveled to Las Cruces, New Mexico, to sit down with federal judge Robert Brack, who's applied to be on that task force. He says he wants the new administration and the public to see what he sees every day. I have felt uh, from the first day being asked to consider a judgeship that I've been called to this position. For 18 years, U.S. District Court Judge Robert Brack has made the walk to his courtroom. Appointed by George W. Bush, most of his cases involve immigration. I see the criminal side of immigration, cases uh, that involve people that have been deported from the United States. Uh, typically Mexican citizens, oftentimes Central American, uh, and they, uh, they've come back without permission. The federal courthouse in which he presides in Las Cruces, New Mexico, surrounded by mountains, and more than 40 miles to the south, the Mexican border. We've got numerous agents patrolling right on the line. A border state with border issues. Today, a breach in the wall. Last night, in this area here, there was over 100 individuals that came in. These two men from Ecuador captured for a third time, trying to get to work in New York. Nearby, on the Mexican side of the wall, one of hundreds of stone border monuments, once the only markers separating the two countries. It represents the United States and Mexico, the coming together of our, at our border. Judge Brack, like so many of his defendants, caught between cultures and ever-changing immigration policies. I'm enforcing a law that, uh, that people know uh, that they've broken. But my frustration is that we keep moving the target. Are you able to hear me? 
In an often grueling and predictable routine, Judge Brack hands down his sentences. Now in an empty courtroom, his defendants appearing virtually from detention centers throughout the state. I see hardened criminals, but most of the people that I see are, um, are not those. Most of the people I see, you know, are just salt of the earth people that don't have criminal histories and they're coming here to work. The people that I'm talking about have been here for years because we looked the other way, because we wanted them here, we needed them here. But then policy changes and they go from being someone who was welcomed here to being a felon. Can we have it both ways as a country? We want them here, but they're criminals and we don't want them here. Uh, there's a reckoning that has to happen. A reckoning, Judge Brack says, that's up to the American people. It's not my place to advocate. I just want to inform people about what I know. I read somewhere that you said that you presided over a process that destroys families. Yes, I've said that. A lot of people were outraged by families being separated, children being taken from their parents. And I'm not sure that people understood that in a different form, this has been going on as long as we've been enforcing our immigration laws. I pray that you take these stories to heart, that you consider these children. Over the years, letters to politicians in Washington seemingly falling on deaf ears. This one to President Obama about one of his defendants. A particular gentleman who had come to our country in 1959 by invitation of the United States government as a participant in the Bracero program. At some point, he was charged with felony re-entry, and as I sentenced him to time served and deported him back to Mexico, he was understandably confused. He's 75 years old, he has no other criminal history, and today he was punished and branded a felon for doing the very thing we invited him to do at a time when it suited our needs. He will be deported within the next few days to a country he knows nothing about. Yeah, that's all I need to talk about that. Get me all fired up if I'm not careful. <laughs> it gets you emotional? Sure it does. I, sure it does, and that's why, um, uh, that's why I hope to be a part of a fix, uh, because I've been a part of the, of the damage for so long. A fix, he says, for a system still broken as the sun sets on yet another day in New Mexico. In Las Cruces, for Matter of Fact, I'm Jessica Gomez. Next on Matter of Fact, honoring the oath of office. I took an oath under God. Under God, I took an oath. Do we still take that seriously in this country? Plus, how big tech set a precedent with the president and how this woman gave strangers something to hold on to once their loved ones were gone. Welcome back to Matter of Fact. As we approach the coming inauguration of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, we stop to consider the state of the presidency itself and the oath of office. Before they take office, elected officials swear to uphold the U.S. Constitution. But what happens when they're accused of doing the opposite? Presidential scholars argue the oath is part of democracy's glue. 
Corey Brettschneider is a professor of political science at Brown University and also a visiting law professor at Fordham Law School. He's the author of The Oath and the Office, a guide to the Constitution for Future Presidents. Corey Brettschneider, so nice to see you again. Let's start with the oath of office. And will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. Beginning with President Trump himself, uh, do you believe the president has, in fact, violated this oath, and, and specifically how? Uh, the president, in Article 2, has to, in the first seconds in office, take the oath to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. The peaceful transition of power is the definition of what it means to be in a democracy, and he's undermined it, unlike literally any other president in history. So let's talk about the Congress people. Um, do you believe that some of them have, in fact, also violated their oath of office? Uh, yes. I mean, uh, and that's a fundamental point. The Constitution outlines the oath of the president, but other oaths are taken to uphold the rule of law of the Constitution, including members of Congress. But um, these members uh, who are members of QAnon or supporters of it or others who might not be that extreme but still have claimed, have lied about uh, supposed fraud in this election with no evidence, uh, they don't just violate a provision of the Constitution. They really violate its part. And it's an undermining of our democracy. And uh, this is a, a historic event really unlike any other. Is there ever a moment where a, a, a member of Congress is a private citizen and can say, as a member of Congress, I'm saying this, but as a private citizen, here's what I believe, and those two things are, are separate? I think members of Congress and the president have free speech rights, like you and I, and so you can't go to jail, I think, for instance, for uh, indulging in a conspiracy theory uh, or in simply saying, I think that this election was fixed when it wasn't. Uh, but there's a difference between that and the obligation that comes with the office to tell the truth, to protect democracy. And if you want to continue to hold the office, you've got to comply with at least the minimum requirements of the oath. Many people are talking about moving on and unity, to quote uh, the soon-to-be President Biden's own words. Um, I, I found that kind of perplexing. Talk of move forward or let's get along, kumbaya. No, when you're facing an insurrection, you've got to put down the insurrection, stop it. And most important is that we've got to make sure it doesn't happen again. The reason why, you know, I don't think the framers gave us enough ways to protect ourselves against a dangerous president, but they did give us one tool, and that's impeachment, removal, and disqualification for office. Why did they do that? Not just because they thought that a president should be punished for being bad, but because it was about protecting democracy, making sure that going forward, the most powerful person in the country and his or her allies in Congress weren't able to undermine the stability of the entire nation, and they thought that was a real danger. I think that the media, in many ways, kind of downplayed things that were being overtly said, and we never figured out how to say if something's a lie, if something's misinformation, if something is inciting a riot and violence, if something's against democracy, how do we cover it? You know, we have a, a huge protection of free speech in this country. We protect Holocaust denial. Germany criminalizes it. We protect uh, all sorts of white supremacist statements that would land you in jail in the rest of the world, literally. It's only going to basically avoid the collapse of democracy if journalists do their job. That truth won't win out if people aren't fact-checking in real time as 
social media failed to do, and as the media in general failed to do. Corey Brettschneider, nice to chat with you. Coming up, should big tech be passive when it comes to online speech? Or is social media complicit in dividing the nation? And the two men despised each other. Which president skipped the inauguration of their successors and why? Welcome back to Matter of Fact. Social media is just one of many factors that played a role in the deadly attack on the U.S. Capitol, but it's a huge one. That attack was openly planned online for weeks following the November election. But for years, disinformation, conspiracy theories, and calls for political violence went unchecked on social media. Well, now the immense power and responsibility of big tech has never been clearer. Professor Olivia Sylvain is a professor of law at Fordham University, and his research is in communication law and policy. Professor Olivier Sylvain, thank you for talking with me. Um, there are some people who I think are looking at this Twitter ban of the president or even all the issues that uh, folks on Parler uh, are having uh, and saying, hey, this is a First Amendment issue. This is a First Amendment right that is now being violated by a social media company. Do companies always have the ability to put limits on the people who are using their services? So there are limits that the companies set out in their terms of use with users. Uh, and um, those companies have to abide by those terms as users do. So that's a limit that, that, that um, every, every party who's engaged in the transaction has to which they have to agree. Um, there's another question, though, about what the law limits. Um, and Section Section 230 does allow these companies to make these moderation decisions through their terms of service with users. What responsibility do you think that Twitter and Facebook and even YouTube, which you mentioned, do they have in limiting uh, some of this speech, hate speech? How can you um, help social media companies do a better job when it comes to misinformation and disinformation? Historically, and maybe I'm biased because I'm a law professor, law is the way that we do that. Um, the problem is that, as I mentioned a second ago, Section 230 has created an immunity, uh, safe harbor, for entities like Twitter and Facebook. And they haven't felt the brunt and burden of law uh, in ways that every other kind of media company would. That is, not allowing fraudulent content, not allowing harassing content, harmful content, unlawful content, not just not just awful content, but unlawful content. Twitter is very different, is treated very differently than the New York Times. Uh, why are they not treated like media companies? And do you see that shifting and changing? In 1996, when Congress enacted the Communications Decency Act, what we now call Section 230, legislators didn't want to um, put shackles on an emergent business, an emergent line of communication, a view that um, innovation would be possible and that that the internet would be a true authentic expression of society in ways that pre the prevailing media weren't. Um, that might have been true uh, 25 years ago. Um, the business model that emerges after that is really just about um, privileging and optimizing user engagement. The algorithms deploy content for the, in the interest of maximizing or optimizing user engagement for the purposes of delivering ads. What do you think happens both on the First Amendment right front and, and also how social media companies are going to really think about how they have to be responsible for what is being published on their platforms? 
on the First Amendment front, I don't see a lot of movement. Uh, you know, constitutional law is 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 hard to reform, and the only entity responsible for really doing it is the Supreme Court. This court has not evinced any interest really in um, narrowing the scope of free speech rights. So the contrary has expanded it to in, to include um, the rights of companies. Section 230 reform, I think, is the most interesting and likeliest. And there are several bills that have been in play in D.C. Um, that would reform the way in which courts evaluate whether an intermediary like Twitter or Facebook is complicit in the distribution of harmful content. And the third is really addressed to your question, what, are they going to change? Are these companies going to change? It's costly for them to um, not have as engaging content, right? To not have as much hateful content. Um, that they have to make, that they're making the decisions based on the bottom line worries me a great deal. And I think we don't want them to be making the ultimate decision. Thank you for talking with me. I appreciate it. Sure. Thanks for having me. Next, sewing a lasting connection to victims of COVID-19. But first, what John Adams and Donald Trump have in common. Now to a weekly feature we like to call, we're paying attention even if you're too busy. Donald Trump's last tweet before his account was permanently suspended announced he would not be attending the transfer of power to President-elect Joe Biden on Capitol Hill on January 20th. Trump will be the first outgoing president in 152 years to boycott the swearing-in ceremony of his successor. This last happened in 1869 when President Andrew Johnson stayed in the White House while Ulysses S. Grant was sworn in as the 18th president. The two men despised each other. They didn't see eye to eye over reconstruction of the defeated South after the Civil War. By the time Johnson was leaving office, he was a one-term president who was the first ever to be impeached in U.S. history. But it was John Adams who set the precedent. He left Washington the morning of Thomas Jefferson's inauguration in 1801. His son, President John Quincy Adams, left Washington the day before the 1829 swearing-in of Andrew Jackson. Still ahead on Matter of Fact, as COVID claims more lives each day, using clothes for closure. Viewfinder, we're in San Antonio, Texas. Pictures from the San Antonio Express News take us inside the Alamo Dome where the COVID-19 vaccine was distributed. Online reservations for all 9,000 shots were booked in six minutes. And finally, a lasting memory to hold on to. Teddy bears made from the clothing of COVID-19 victims. Erendira Guerrero initially made the bears for families devastated by the violence in Juarez, Mexico. But now, with the pandemic taking a toll, Guerrero is getting customers longing to remember their family members who died from the virus. Relatives bring in a favorite shirt, and then Guerrero cuts the shirt and sews it onto the bear. And sometimes she even includes a thoughtful note. It's a lasting gift, $30. Guerrero estimates that she's made about 200 bears for families. A little bit of comfort in these difficult times. That's it for this edition of Matter of Fact. I'm Soledad O'Brien, and we'll see you back here next week. Listen to Matter of Fact with Soledad O'Brien on Apple Podcasts and Spotify.